We started our discussion of the uh, mind and the five aggregates. And we saw that uh, when we speak about mind in uh, Buddhism, we're talking about mental activity. It's the individual subjective mental activity of experiencing something, and it's going on all the time uh, with each of us individually, and there's never a break. And that uh, mental activity always uh, has content. Its definition is uh, clarity and awareness. We saw that uh, clarity refers to the uh, arising of a mental hologram. In other words, uh, the various uh, types of uh, sensory data, for instance, that uh, 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 hit our cognitive sensors, you know, the photosensitive cells of the eyes or the sound sensitive of the ears and so on, that uh, the mental activity is referring to the transformation of that uh, data into actual information that uh, we can deal with. So it is, uh, uh, that can be processed further, if we want to use that type of uh, terminology. And uh, like a computer uh, transforming zeros and ones into an image on the screen, uh, then uh, likewise the mental activity uh, in most cases will display that uh, information in terms of a mental hologram. And the mental hologram can be either uh, visual. We shouldn't think of hologram in, you know, too literally as being uh, only visual, but uh, it could be in the ter- in sense of a mental sound. It could be uh, a mental uh, uh, smell or taste or physical sensation. And uh, if it's uh, not being uh, directly stimulated from some external source, but uh, internally from brain waves, it uh, would be a thought. Uh, When we talk about uh, displaying information, uh, that can be, uh, you know, it could be directly displayed or not actually uh, displayed. It's like, for instance, uh, when we look inside the uh, refrigerator and there's no milk, we uh, see what's displayed is the inside of the refrigerator and uh, what we know from it, but actually it's not displayed in some visual form, is no milk. There's no milk there. So uh, uh, in that sense, the uh, information can be either actually manifestly displayed or not manifestly displayed. That's just sort of an interesting point about it. Of uh, how do we know there's no milk there? But because uh, <laughs> we see nothing. In any case, uh, we have uh, the clarity side. The other side of uh, the defining characteristic, which is talking about the same phenomenon, is a uh, cognitive engagement. That in cognitive engagement is uh, uh, seeing or hearing or thinking, etc. It could be accurate, inaccurate. In the case of uh, mental uh, uh, cognition, it could be conceptual, it could be non-conceptual. There are many different ways of engaging. And uh, we saw of the awareness aspect. And this, uh, uh, these two 
aspects are referring to the same phenomenon that uh, transformation of the data into some sort of information is uh, what is actually seeing, what is actually hearing, what is actually uh, thinking. So these are not two uh, separate functions. Uh, when we look uh, deeper into uh, some of the uh, more sophisticated theories, when we get into a uh, discussion of the two truths and so on, this uh, giving rise to a, uh, a mental hologram or an appearance is uh, the conventional nature side and the uh, awareness side is the uh, deepest uh, nature side. So these two are inseparable referring to the same thing at the same uh, essential nature, meaning they're referring to the same mental activity, but just from two different points of view. There's uh, always uh, uh, content, both on the side of the mental hologram that uh, arises and the type of awareness that uh, is arising. So this is the uh, content, and this uh, content is uh, um, multi-part. It's made up of uh, many, many uh, variables. And uh, that is actually what the whole topic of the five aggregates is all about. It's about uh, all these variables that make up uh, each moment of our mental activity. So let's just take a, uh, uh, um, a short period to try to refresh our memories about uh, what actually uh, we are talking about when we talk about mental activity. And one of the most uh, important type of uh, meditations that we do, uh, particularly in the area of Mahamudra, is to try to actually uh, recognize and focus on mental activity. I mean, what actually is, you know, it's just said focus on the mind, but uh, what does that mean? It's not that we're focusing on some thing, some immaterial thing that is uh, doing this mental activity, but and as if we were something separate from it, just uh, observing it, or and then in daily life trying to control it, uh, although it might feel like that. That is uh, a deceptive appearance that, uh, with uh, ignorance, we don't know that this is incorrect, and so we believe it. And uh, we grasp onto it mentally as if it uh, truly existed, as if this truly were the case, that uh, uh, there's a separate me over here looking at and trying to control what's going on in our minds over there. So this is uh, an important type of uh, practice and meditation is to actually try to recognize mental activity as it's going on, in other words, in every moment, so you don't have to conjure it up from somewhere because it uh, is happening in each moment as we are meditating and uh, it's helpful to look around the room to uh, not just sit with your eyes closed because that's, uh, uh, what should we say, not very obvious mental activity. That is uh, a more advanced level of doing this type of uh, practice, but uh, actually just try to see what is that uh, mental activity and what is the trickiest thing about this type of meditation is to do that 
without imagining that I, as the observer, am separate from that. In other words, it is just what's described as a be, you know, awareness of what's going on without there being a separate me that is aware. In other words, there is, uh, as part of that mental activity, there is an understanding of what it is. So, just try that for, you know, to try to um, identify what we are focusing on. This is very, very important for any meditation, otherwise we don't know what we're doing, what we're trying to do. So, uh, what is the actual object or aim of the focus in our meditation? And then, so that means refreshing our memory about uh, the defining characteristic and then just focus on it. We won't do this for very long, but just as a uh, way of refreshing our memory as uh, concerning what we're talking about and seeing that we actually are talking about here something that we all experience, so it's very personal. It's not something which is abstract. Okay? And we bring into our meditation not only what we are seeing or hearing, but also what we're thinking. Any thoughts that come up, that's still mental activity. It's very good that uh, someone is coughing because that's part of the meditation, isn't it? We're hearing something that's mental activity. 
the arising of a mental hologram. There's just sound waves coming from that, isn't there? Okay, as you might have noticed, this is not very easy to actually identify what is mental activity and to uh, stay focused on just its nature of what it is as it's happening in each moment. But uh, once we're able to do that, what we notice is that it is changing from moment to moment because the content is changing both in terms of the uh, mental hologram that uh, is arising, the sight, we were hearing the sound of a cough, well we were hearing a sound and we're seeing, you know, we're seeing things and uh, if you had a little bit of mental wandering, which most of us do, then there were thoughts coming up as well. So there's content on the side of the uh, mental hologram that appears and there's also uh, content on the side of whatever emotions, whatever feelings, whatever level of concentration or interest, we might have been very bored by it, uh, all these sort of things are variables, uh, part of the content. And the five aggregates are a basic, basically an analytical scheme for being able to deconstruct all these different uh, variables. Variables means things that are changing. And once we uh, become a little bit more uh, um, aware and alert of uh, all these uh, factors, then we notice that they're all changing at different rates. So in each moment, there is a uh, mixture, for want of a better word, of uh, many, many different things, and they're all changing at different rates. There's nothing solid about it whatsoever. So that is a very deep insight, actually, a very profound insight that uh, all these things are changing all the time, and uh, there's nothing solid at all about, let's say, a mood that we're in, or an emotion you know, like sadness that uh, we're feeling very strongly. None of these things are uh, static and they don't occur on their own. While we're feeling depressed, we're also seeing things, we're also thinking things, all sorts of things are going on at the same time. And so uh, that opens up the door for being able to apply various methods to either strengthen things that are very weak or uh, dampen down or ultimately try to get rid of the things that are causing us uh, difficulties and problems. We need to be able to sort out 
what is it in our mental activity which is so-called not to be abandoned, like concentration, for example, uh, or uh, compassion, and things which are to be abandoned. Abandoned means to get rid of so that they don't occur anymore. And uh, uh, that would include things like anger and greed, attachment, uh, these sort of uh, uh, troublemakers that cause us problems. Ignorance, not knowing what's going on, not understanding. So the aggregates are only including the non-static phenomena. Non-static means that they're not just standing still. They are uh, uh, constantly changing, and it doesn't include the static ones, the ones that uh, don't change. It's part of our mental activity. There are also factors that are static, like uh, categories, you know, a category like dog or love or emotion, something like that. These are sort of uh, fixed, what's called metaphysical entities that uh, uh, we can change them. In other words, uh, our idea of what uh, compassion is might uh, change when we uh, study it deeper or have more experience of it. But uh, that's just an exchange of one static category uh, to another. It's not something that organically grows like uh, some sort of uh, variable. What is uh, important to also realize is that uh, uh, the five aggregates are uh, just an analytical scheme. They are a device. They're not five bags sitting somewhere in our head. Uh, like that. So don't give them any sort of uh, concrete uh, existence. It's just a tool for being able to deconstruct each moment of our experience. Uh, Each of these uh, aggregates, uh, except for two of them, are made up of uh, many, many uh, variables within it. And in each moment of our experience, one or more items from each of these uh, groups are going to be present in that moment of uh, cognition. When they're not present, then they are uh, there as a tendency. Or, you know, like, for instance, there can be a tendency to uh, uh, experience anger. It's not uh, happening manifestly every single moment, but that tendency is there. And the tendency itself is something which can be reinforced and strengthened, or it can be weakened. These are not things that are static. The tendencies themselves are things which are variable, which uh, can change. This also uh, has to do with uh, karmic tendencies as well. Don't think of them as being something which is fixed. They can be affected, strengthened, weakened, and uh, with the proper opponents uh, deactivated and uh, eliminated. Okay? So, focus on that for a moment. Try to digest that, that uh, we are talking about uh, all the variables, the changing factors that uh, comprise our moment-to-moment experiencing. 
and uh, although the way that we uh, it seems to us that uh, in, at any sort of time and also over a period of time that what we are experiencing is some heavy heavy thing like a depression or sadness or it could be happiness as well I mean it could be anything that uh, it appears to us as though it's one solid thing but uh, in actuality it's not it's made up of many many variables or parts that are changing at different rates and there are meditations in which we focus on that on how everything is changing you know, meditations on impermanence are, you know, you can apply it to the weather, but uh, more uh, relevant is applying it to uh, what we actually are experiencing at every moment. So this is our topic of the five aggregates, the ever-changing variables that make up each moment of our lives, each moment of our experiencing things, each moment of our mental activity. And when we understand the five aggregates, then we also understand how the self, or me, fits into these. Uh, self is included as uh, one uh, within one of these uh, aggregates and when we understand that that it's just part of the whole mixture of what's going on in each moment then we can overcome our unawareness or ignorance with which we imagine uh, that uh, uh, there is some sort of dualistic thing that's going on that there is a me which is separate from all of this that is either observing it dissociated from it totally separate from it or that is trying to control it or feels that it's out of control this is a deceptive appearance and when we understand that uh uh, the self is part of uh, this mixture. It's neither identical with the awareness aspect of what's going on, nor is it totally separate from dualistically from the mental hologram. 
that joy is arising when we feel in either of these ways, you know, that I am the mind looking at uh, this thing, or I am awareness, or we identify with one of the factors like uh, sadness, you know, I'm so sad, or pain, you know, I'm you know, so miserable, I hurt, this sort of thing, then uh, um, what happens is that we feel insecure. Insecurity, we don't actually have that word in the uh, uh, analysis of the five aggregates, but it seems to fit in, in terms of how we experience this ignorance. Ignorance is uh, uh, defined as just not knowing, or knowing in an incorrect way. We either don't know cause and effect or you know, what's actually happening or we don't know the reality of what's happening. And because we don't know that what appears is incorrect, how it seems to us is incorrect, then how do we experience that? You feel insecure. And then we have all these mechanisms that uh, occur to try to make that dualistic self Secure, you know, I'm out of control. You know, so what do I do? I uh, I, I want to be able to control everything. So uh, longing, desire. If I get certain things to me, that's going to make me feel secure. If I get enough money, if I get enough likes on my Facebook page or my Instagram, this is going to make me feel secure. Or if uh, you say to me enough times, I love you, that'll make me uh, secure. Or we want to get things away from us. That's hostility and anger. That somehow that's going to make us uh, secure. If I can just get all the dirt out of my house, the disorder out of my house, that'll make me feel secure. So we have this uh, repulsion as another mechanism. Or naivety. We put up the walls. You know, I just, I'm going to ignore it. You know, something that's threatening or what's happening in the world or what's happening, you know, whatever. That's another mechanism. And, of course, they don't work. That's the the problem. And what they do is they trigger our compulsive behavior. That uh, is the whole topic of karma. And so compulsively, we clean the house yet again, even though we just, or wash our hands yet again, although we just did did that. Or uh, we... uh, try to, you know, at the buffet, eat as much as we possibly can because, you know, we, we paid for the bouquet, buffet, so you might as well eat everything and taste everything. Uh, this type of uh, syndrome that uh, we have. So this compulsive behavior, that's what karma is talking about, the compulsivity of our uh, actions, uh, thinking, speaking, you know, and, and actually behaving. And that, of course, produces problems. So this whole issue of uh, the five aggregates and how the self fits into the five aggregates, in other words, how the self fits into our mental activity from moment to moment is really very, very crucial in terms of being able to overcome suffering, which is what Buddhism is all about, of uh, all the various very sophisticated methods that uh, Buddha taught for overcoming suffering. Okay, the five aggregates, they are, just to list them, uh, consciousness, 
referring to primary consciousness, forms of physical phenomena, distinct, what I call translate as distinguishing. Sometimes you'll hear it translated as recognition, but I think that's not very accurate. So distinguishing, feeling, feeling is referring to uh, not emotions, it is referring to feeling some level of happiness or unhappiness, and then what I translate as other affecting variables. In other words, all the rest of the variables, the things that change, that are going to affect each moment of our experience, sometimes called conditioned phenomenon. But I think affecting variables gives a little bit more flavor of what it's talking about. So consciousness, forms of physical phenomenon, distinguishing, feeling a level of happiness or unhappiness, and everything else, all the other affecting uh, variables. That's not the standard uh, order of uh, listing them. There is a standard order, but uh, I find that uh, this order uh, makes it a little bit easier initially to understand what they're talking about. First of these is uh, primary consciousness. Primary consciousness, there are six basic kinds. Uh, from the Karmakagyu point of view, there are eight, but uh, when we speak about eight, nevertheless, there are still six basic uh, types. And these are uh, eye consciousness, uh, ear consciousness, uh, nose consciousness, tongue consciousness, and uh, uh, the consciousness of uh, the body, so physical sensations, not just uh, um, hot and cold, but motion, I mean, you know, all these sort of physical sensations, and uh, uh, then mental consciousness. So we don't have uh, exactly the same type of uh, presentation as we have in uh, science, in which we just speak about uh, consciousness as being mental consciousness. We uh, speak in Buddhism uh, a little bit more uh, specifically in terms of uh, each of the different types of uh, sensory consciousness and uh, then mental consciousness as well. I suppose if we uh, uh, had to go uh, more in the direction of a scientific analysis, we would find that there are even more types of uh, primary consciousness that humans don't have, but uh, various animals have, such as consciousness of the magnetic field, consciousness of uh, 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 sonar, you know, what, what uh, whales have, and so on. So there are other types of uh, sensory data that uh, could be known by mental activity. Uh, as humans, our hardware is limited uh, in terms of the sensory apparatus of our uh, bodies, and so uh, we are limited to these six types of uh, basic primary uh, consciousness. It always becomes very interesting when you try to, as uh, His Holiness the Dalai Lama is uh, uh, making efforts to somehow uh, incorporate the uh, findings or analyses of uh, science, brain science, 
uh, with the uh, Buddhist analysis to see that they are not contradictory, but uh, that they fit together, that they supplement each other. So when we speak about uh, these uh, six basic types of uh, primary consciousness, uh, what is it that they cognize? You know, we're talking about the awareness side. You know, it's giving rise to a mental hologram, but how is it aware? What is it aware of in terms of that uh, data? I mean, that, inf- yeah, well, that data. And uh, what is aware of is the, what's called the essential nature of what's going on. You know, if we speak in terms of a computer, then within the string of zeros and ones, Uh, of any piece of uh, data, there's a certain combination of them. I don't know where it is in the uh, actual uh, coding, but there's a certain combination of it that indicates is it uh, visual information or is it audio information? And that is the part of the data that primary consciousness is uh, focused on, the essential nature of that data. Is it a sight? Is it a sound? Is it a smell? Is it a taste? Is it a physical sensation? Or is it some sort of uh, mental uh, phenomenon, for want of a better word, that can only be known by the mind, like a thought? That's what primary consciousness is uh, uh, aware of, what it uh, focuses uh, uh, specifically on. Yeah. Uh, can we get the microphone, please? Uh, I was just wondering if uh, intuition or gut feeling fits into that category. Well, I really couldn't hear what you just said. Uh, sorry. Uh, I was wondering if intuition. Our gut feeling is a part of that first consciousness. Is intuition or gut feeling uh, part of that? The See, this gets into a, another topic, another uh, analytical scheme, which is uh, ways of knowing. How does that uh, consciousness Work And the consciousness never works alone by itself. There are always other mental factors that are uh, part of it. So uh, how does it know things? Sensory consciousness is just non-conceptual. Mental consciousness can be conceptual or non-conceptual. If it's conceptual, it can be uh, inference based on logic. You know, where there's smoke, there's fire, this type of thing. Uh, Intuition has to do with uh, basically one of the forms of uh, knowing is uh, presumption. It's called. Presumption is basically a guess that uh, we uh, know something, but we're not sure about it. There's no certainty to it. And what we presume to be true, like 
um, the Buddhist teachings on emptiness or voidness. We presume that it's true, but we don't really understand it. So we don't have, you know, real certainty about our understanding. So that presumption could be about uh, we can uh, presume that something is true which is true, or we can presume that something is true that's not true. So it can go in either direction. And intuition is sort of like that. That uh, we think that it's true, we believe it, but our intuition could be wrong. You know, my intuition is that the bus is going to come on time, you know, that it's going to be here, and uh, by the count of ten, it's going to arrive. Uh, that my intuitive understanding, and maybe it does, and then we think, oh, I'm so great, you know, I really knew beforehand that it was going to happen. So that's presumption. A gut feeling has to do more with uh, uh, how much understanding there is. Understanding is uh, another way of knowing something, which has, which is both accurate and uh, decisive. And that's an intellectual understanding in a sense. Accurate and decisive. This is exactly, you know, what it means. And I'm really sure about it. And it's correct. It's not that I'm sure about something which is incorrect. And then the gut feeling has to do with uh, actually uh, integrating it into our lives and uh, seeing that it really uh, is true based on experience. That's what we call a, uh, a gut level understanding. So we have all these different terminology that we use in our Western analysis of what we experience. And when we understand not just the scheme of the five aggregates, but the whole analysis of ways of knowing, and there are uh, other uh, schemes as well, in terms of logic and you know, lines of reasoning and all of that, when we uh, have that full scope of uh, the Buddhist teachings, then we can uh, see how you can translate what we uh, refer to by our Western terminology into the Buddhist terminology. And most cases, they don't actually overlap. You know, what is called by just one word, let's say intuition, in uh, our Western terms, actually... It's a combination of many different things in the uh, Buddhist analytical s- schemes. So it works like that. I don't think there's anything uh, mysterious that couldn't be um, translated and you know analyzed and then transposed into and made understandable in the other systems. You know, one to the other. So to answer your question. <laughs> Primary consciousness will know things in many, many different ways. And intuition or gut understanding or so on will be the different ways in which it knows things, uh, in which it focuses on the essential nature of something. I mean, it gets a little bit more complicated, you know, the deeper that you go. But basically, first level uh, answer would be that. Okay.
So each, as I said, um, sensory cognition, sensory consciousness is non-conceptual. What is conceptual? Conceptual is um, with a category, basically. If we give the most uh, general uh, explanation of it, a conceptual thing is fitting things into categories like dog or uh, human or something like that. That's conceptual. And non-conceptual is without that. So in uh, non-conceptual cognition, that is with sensory consciousness, you can also have non-conceptual mental consciousness. But uh, when we talk about conceptual, it's always mental. It's not something that uh, operates with the uh, senses. So when we have sensory uh, consciousness, sensory cognition of something, then there's the arising of a mental hologram of basic information, you know, a sight. So it could be colored shapes and uh, so on. Um, Then (laughs) I always think of uh, examples, you know, if you have a uh, a bill, you know, money. Here you use krona in uh, Norway. So if you have a, I don't know, a hundred krona note, well, basically, there's the electromagnetic waves, you know, and strikes the eye, and what do you see? You have a mental hologram of colored shapes. That's what it is, basically, colored shapes, right? So that's the basic information that uh, we get from uh, eye consciousness. So it makes it into a sight, not that it makes it into a sight, but it uh, focuses on the fact that this is a visual data, and then it's followed by a moment of mental consciousness, non-conceptual, which then sort of switches it from the channel of sense consciousness to mental consciousness. And again, there's you know mental consciousness of just colored shapes. That's what it is. And it's, uh, so in that sense, because uh, sensory consciousness is followed by a moment, non-conceptual sensory consciousness is followed by a moment of non-conceptual mental consciousness of of basically the same type of hologram that we can fit in the scientific notion that mind is, you know, mental consciousness is all that there is. So mental consciousness does play a central role, but the Buddhist analysis takes it, you know, in a little bit more detail. That first it's coming, you know, with eye consciousness or ear consciousness, and then mental consciousness is going to deal with it. Okay? So not inconsistent with the ment- with the Western analysis. Digest that a moment. Yes. Can you uh, give him the microphone, please? Does it work? 
there's a concept called perception. Does that fit in with some of your explanations here? Uh, there's the Western term perception. Uh, perception, when it is used very specifically, refers to sense perception, and that would be the sensory cognition, yes. Non-conceptual sensory cognition, that would be perception. Right. So now, Kamakagyu uh, accepts eight types of uh, primary consciousness. So what are these other two? Not so simple, actually. There is uh, foundational consciousness or storehouse consciousness. And uh, that is the foundation on which karmic tendencies, potentials, and habits are stored. Now we're speaking just in the sutra system. So let's leave it at uh, that level without getting more complicated. So it is the basic foundation consciousness uh, thing that is going on underneath the whole uh, uh, strata of uh, primary consciousness and so on. Uh, on which are um, imputed is the word uh, you know because they're not physical the tendencies habits potentials memories all these sort of things are sort of the carrier that uh, is uh, going on from moment to moment it's not exactly at all the way that it is defined in the mind only system but uh the terminology is uh, used in the Karmakagyu system and Nyingma system and Sakya system as well. Yeah. This is Kunshi Namshi. This is Kunshi Namshi in uh, Tibetan, Aliya Vinyana in uh, Sanskrit. So there's the foundation, consciousness, and then there is the seventh consciousness or seventh mind, sometimes it's called. And it is simultaneous with foundational consciousness, and it aims at it and affects the foundational consciousness so that it gives rise to appearances. It's very subtle. We're talking about the arising of mental holograms, right? That's the clarity side. And what arises is the appearance side. So it's called clarity, you know, appearance. It's inseparable from each other. So the, uh, how does that work is what this is addressing. And so these various mental holograms that arise are arising, the one hand, you know, everything depends on many, many causes and conditions. On the one hand, there is, uh, uh, if it's sensory, there's some external stimulus, electromagnetic waves, or brain waves, if we talk about uh, mental. And there is some tendency or potential to experience that to experience seeing that, for example, to experience coming here and seeing, you know, what we're seeing here today. So 
that has to be you know when we actually enter the room then that uh, tendency needs to be in a sense stimulated to give rise to a mental hologram and so that is the effect of the seventh consciousness you know it aims at the foundation consciousness and affects it to be able to give rise to a mental hologram in conjunction with some external stimulus if it's sensory and there can be all sorts of other things that are involved as well but this is the basic mechanism and when that uh, whole process when that seventh mind is under the influence of ignorance or unawareness then it causes the foundation consciousness to give rise to a dualistic appearance me over here as the mind looking at it and the mental hologram over there dualistic this is the basic explanation of the seventh and eighth consciousnesses in the Kargu scheme, Karma Kargu scheme. Foundation consciousness and in Chittimatra it's called the deluded consciousness, but uh, uh, since it also works with uh, a Buddha, uh, we don't want to call it deluded consciousness, so it often is referred to just as the seventh consciousness, the seventh mind. Okay? Good. Number eight is foundation consciousness. In the normal listing, you know, standard list. So, try to digest that. That's not so easy. Yeah. Uh, I think I've sometimes heard the seventh consciousness called the. Can, uh, can you get the microphone, please? I've sometimes heard the uh, seventh consciousness uh, being called afflictive consciousness. Right, afflictive consciousness. I would translate as deluded consciousness, and uh, that is uh, the way that it is defined in the mind-only system. But uh, if we speak about, you know, the, when we talk about foundation consciousness. There are two of them in uh, the Karmakaryu uh, uh, scheme, analytical scheme. There's a, a foundational deep awareness and foundational, I like to call it dividing awareness. And foundational deep awareness is giving rise to pure appearances, you know, what a Buddha has referring to the subtlest level of mind and so on. There's all sorts of explanations of that. And the uh, um, and it is affected by this uh, seventh consciousness to give rise to its appearances. So that's there. And when there is ignorance or unawareness, then mixed together 
explained, like uh, milk and water, are the or gold and the other metals, you know, making an alloy, uh, is the foundational dividing awareness. And so that seventh consciousness now focuses on the uh, uh, this uh, uh, foundational dividing awareness and causes it to produce appearances that are divided into a dualistic appearance. So when uh, that seventh consciousness is uh, called deluded or afflictive consciousness, that's referring to only when it is functioning under the force, under the influence of ignorance and aimed at foundational dividing consciousness, not when it's aimed at foundational deep awareness. Also, to just make it more <laughs> complete, here in, the, in uh, this Kagyu uh, um, uh, system, we're not talking about the mind-only school. This is Madhyamaka, for want of a uh, you know, more specific term. I mean, it's more general. It's Madhyamaka. And uh, within that, it's giving rise when uh, that seventh consciousness is focused on foundational dividing awareness, it's giving rise to a dualistic appearance in the mind-only system that uh, seventh con- that deluded consciousness, it's called, is aimed at the alia vinyana, the foundation consciousness. They don't make the difference between foundational deep awareness and dividing awareness and considers it to be the self, me. So slightly different. Yeah. Yeah, two points. Um, first, on the silent consciousness. Right. Um, sometimes that is also called the consciousness of the kleshas. Consciousness of what? Kleshas. Aha. Uh-huh. Is that uh, then the consciousness of the emotions? Where do emotions come in? Okay. Sometimes the seventh consciousness, he says, is called consciousness of the kleshas. Kleshas are the disturbing emotions not all emotions. There are constructive emotions like love, patience, compassion, and disturbing or destructive emotions like anger or greed or jealousy, arrogance, these type of things. And uh, no, (laughs) the seventh consciousness doesn't focus on that. It focuses on foundational awareness. When it uh, focuses on this foundational dividing awareness, and gives and stimulates it to uh, make an, the rising of, appear, of an appearance from the tendency that's there. Then, uh, because there is um, ignorance, we just don't know that it exists the way that it appears, and grasping for the true existence of you know what is appearing, so we take it to be true to correspond to reality. Then that causes the disturbing emotions to arise in relation to that. You know, I don't like what I'm, what, you know, this hologram that I'm seeing from over here, and I want to get rid of it. You know, this cockroach on the floor or whatever it is. 
So the kleshas follow later. The disturbing emotions follow, you know, a, a few steps after the uh, seventh awareness. Just in a sense, affects is the word that's used. Uh, it stimulates the rising of a mental hologram. My other point uh, was about the eighth consciousness, the Alaya. Yeah. You also called it a storehouse consciousness. That's just uh, the way that storehouse consciousness is the way that some, usually it was the older translations, you know, done, you know, 50 or 100 years ago. It was translated like that. Okay. Yeah, my point was, what is actually stored there then? What is stored, first of all, it's not physical. But uh, it, uh, it is what is, uh, because they use the word imprinted and so on, the word is imputation, which is, uh, as I learned last time here in uh, Oslo, you don't have a Norwegian word for that, so that makes it very difficult to actually explain, and imputation doesn't convey very much in English either, so uh, that doesn't help. But uh, it is... Uh, in a sense of fact, uh, something like that, about the mental continuum. The fact is that there are tendencies and potentials and uh, uh, habits. These are distinguished, you know, in the discussion of uh, uh, karmic aftermath uh, that uh, follows as an aftermath of certain uh, behavior. There's like the potential and tendency to repeat it that type of uh, tendency. Then there are also tendencies of all the various mental factors. So the tendency to get angry or the tendency that's involved with concentration and they will have different strengths and they can be affected. You know, how strong your, you know, my tendency to be, you know, to be concentrated is very weak, for example, and so when concentration arises, it's pretty weak, but sometimes it's a little bit better. So things, you know, depend on circumstances, dependent arising, everything depends on many things. And if you speak about memories, memory is basically just a uh, potential, no, well, actually the word is tendency, to have a cognition in which something representing a prior event arises as a mental hologram. So, and what, I, what you remember could be accurate or not very accurate. And it could change at different times. You know, what represents that event. That's what memory is. Translated into Buddhist terminology. It's also a tendency to repeat thinking about something that happened in the past. It doesn't fire all the time. It doesn't arise all the time. That's the nature of tendencies, that they only arise. They only produce effects intermittently from time to time. We're not angry every single moment of our existence, for example. Okay. That is forms of physical... I mean, that is the aggregate of consciousness or primary consciousness 
Then the other aggregate I'd like to speak about this morning is the aggregate of forms of physical phenomena. And uh, in the presentation that we have in Kagyu, Nyingma, and Sakya, these forms of physical phenomena are limited to just the ever-changing momentary sensory data. So, it's only talking about one moment of some sort of sensory data, what can be called sensibilia. You want to use a fancy name for it? Sensibilia. Sensibilia is sensory data. So that would be one moment of a um, conglomeration of molecule of particles and molecules large enough to be detected by sensory consciousness. Right? Buddhism does speak about particles and subparticles, this sort of things, and it has to be a conglomeration, you know, a mass of enough of them, molecules and so on, so that it can actually be detected by our sensory apparatus. You know, this is first group of uh, what are forms of physical phenomenon. This sensibilia is only one moment at a time. Only one moment is happening at a time. That's an important point. Only one moment is happening at a time. When we speak about past, present, and future, we don't use those words in uh, Buddhism. We use presently happening, no longer happening, and not yet happening. So, there's not yet happening um, lunch. There's the presently happening lecture. And there's the no longer happening breakfast. So the only thing that's happening now is this one moment, and that one moment doesn't last. In fact, you can't even pin it down. You know, when does this moment start? When does it end? So there's no arising, no enduring, no ending that you can actually find and pinpoint to a moment. Not that a moment is standing off stage and waiting, and now it comes on into our head and it's happening, and then it leaves. That doesn't happen like that. So we're talking about only momentary sense data. So these would be tiny colored shapes, so pixels of light or photons or electromagnetic waves, sound waves, uh, smell molecules, taste molecules, physical sensation, you know, neural whatever it is that uh, is happening there. They arise from external elements, and they can be known both by a specific type of sense consciousness and a mental consciousness. You know, moment one, there's the data, you know, the electromagnetic waves, then, and it hits our sensory apparatus, and then moment two is the sensory 
cognition of it, the arising of a mental hologram, there's a time lag there. And so that moment of the sense data is no longer happening when the mental hologram arises. So that's why it's described that the mental hologram is opaque. You're not actually seeing that no longer happening moment when the electromagnetic waves hit the eye sensors. And then that's followed. So now we have that sensory data is no longer happening. That moment of it's no longer happening. What's happening now is is a mental hologram, rising of a mental hologram of that data in terms of now a mental hologram of colored shapes. And then there's a moment of mental consciousness of the same Well, it's not the same thing now. It's a mental hologram that arises with mental consciousness, you know, of colored shapes. You can't say that it's exactly the same thing because that moment of colored shapes that arose with visual consciousness is no longer happening. Now there's another moment. So it's always moment to moment to moment like that, which always presents a problem in terms of continuity, but we'll see. There's a very uh, reasonable explanation for the continuity that's there. But anyway, that is our uh, sensory consciousness. So it's not mind only. It's not that all of this is coming out of you know, one seed of karma. There's no external stimulus in terms of the arising of these uh, forms of, of uh, physical phenomena. These colored shapes are forms of physical phenomena as well, but they're only known by the mind. That's another um, category within forms of physical phenomena. So we have the sensory data, the sensibilia, moments of that, and then there are forms that are only objects of mental consciousness. So these would be like these uh, For instance, uh, the forms that appear, colored shapes that appear in dreams or in our imagination, visualization, these sort of things. These are only known by mental consciousness. The sensibilia things are known by sensory consciousness and then very quickly a moment of mental consciousness. So you can start to process that uh, data, that's where the brain comes in from the western point of view and then the third category within uh, forms of physical phenomenon are the cognitive sensory cells the photosensitive cells of the eyes the uh, sound sensitive of the ears smell sensitive of the nose taste sensitive of the tongue physical sensation sensitive of the body and the mental well no the mental sensor doesn't come in here that's something else just the physical sensors in western science we would add brain cells into all of this and 
as His Holiness says, that would be reasonable to fit into the system. But it's not actually specified in the traditional text. But it wouldn't be, it wouldn't harm the system at all. It would uh, expand the system to include the, uh, uh, the various cells of the brain, not just the cells within the eye. Okay, so these are the forms of physical phenomenon. Moment to moment changing. We're only talking about one moment. Just sense data, the various types of sense data, various uh, objects that can only be known by the mind, as in dreams. You know, they're, they're sensory, you know, to form colored shape, for example. And in dreams or imagination or visualization, you know, there are many other examples in that. When you think of astronomical distances or you think of, you know, subatomic particles or stuff like that, you can have some sort of, uh, you can know that by the mind. You know, it's not, you don't know it physically from your senses. So there's a, there's a list of these. Okay? Just digest that for a moment. So in each moment of our experiencing, there's going to be something, some form of physical phenomenon that is part of the conglomeration of what's going on. That's on the side of the mental hologram that arises, but also in terms of the cognitive apparatus. Eye-sensitive, photosensitive cells of the eyes and from the Western science, we would have to include in there the neural network and the brain. Okay. Mm-hmm. Now, it starts to become very interesting. The momentary electromagnetic waves or photons are... Uh, what function and produce effects. That's what produces an effect. That's what does things, actually. You'd have to say that from a scientific point of view as well. So it's these electromagnetic waves, this sort of uh, sensory data. They change from moment to moment. They're what function and do things. Non-conceptual sensory cognition of them them lasts only an instant, and it's followed by an instant of non-conceptual mental cognition. Instant means really tiny little phase of it. And then immediately there's conceptual cognition. 
During non-conceptual sensory and mental cognition, there's no manifest grasping for truly established dualistic existence. That's not an easy one, so let's uh, pull that apart a little bit of what that means. During the non-conceptual cognition, you know, the rising of a mental hologram of uh, colored shapes. There uh, is no, you know, a moment of sensory that, and a moment with mental consciousness of that. Okay, take that little piece there. There's no grasping for the truly established existence. That means dualistic existence. That only arises when we think in terms of actual, conventional, whole objects. Conventional, whole objects like um, computer. Then you have this, this appearance of me over here looking at it, this whole object over there. Grasping for truly established existence or dualistic existence does two things. It makes the deceptive appearance arise and it considers it to correspond to reality. So now, in this non-conceptual cognition, you don't have that happening yet because all it is is colored shapes. You're not yet cognizing it or aware of it as a thing. I think that makes it a little bit easier to understand. It's not a thing yet in terms of what we're perceiving. It's just colored shapes. It's just sounds. That's all it is at that point. So there's no grasping for, for a dualistic existence in this non-conceptual cognition because the mental activity has not yet given rise to a mental hologram of everyday conventional whole objects. Okay? So it's in the next moment when now switches to conventional, not to conventional, conceptual cognition that the the conceptual cognition mentally synthesizes, it's the key word, mentally synthesizes and gives rise as this appearing object to an appearance, a mental hologram that represents a conventional whole object what are conventional whole objects? Whole object is something that is not just colored shapes. This object um, there's a recorder here. Well, what we would call a recorder. There's there's what do I see? I see colored shapes. That's all I see. Well, this is not just colored shapes that lasts for one moment, is it? It's something that, if I hold it in my hand, there's also a physical sensation. If I listen very carefully, I can hear a sound. 
So there's a lot of information. But our sensory consciousness can only, a lot of data, I should say. So our sensory consciousness, each of them only picks up one moment at a time of only one type of sensory data. And our conceptual consciousness, mental consciousness, then synthesizes, mentally constructs a common sense whole object that extends over time, doesn't just last for one moment, and that uh, is a composite of all the different types of sensory data of it. Right? This thing that I'm holding up in front of, you know, in front of me, it's not just colored shapes. I mean, we would call it a hand, but that's yet a further step in the process. But uh, it's not just colored shapes. It also, is this, you know, I can hold it, so it's physical sensation. I can smell it. I can stick it in my mouth and taste it. And it doesn't just last for one moment. So conceptual cognition synthesizes it into a whole object. Right? That's an important thing to understand. This is uh, unique in the Kagyu Nyingma and Satya presentation, Galupa says something different. It says you actually see common sense objects. But uh, in these three schools, they say, no, you don't see a, a uh, you only see colored shapes. You don't actually see conventional whole objects. Okay? Digest that for a moment. Yeah. What's the difference between these two views that and you had? What, what significance does it have? What are the consequences of having these two views? What are the consequences of having these two views? That's a very good question. That's a very good question. I think that When we get into the discussion of voidness, 
or emptiness. That's referring to understanding that the deceptive appearance, that there is a total absence of anything that corresponds to this appearance. To present it in the most basic terms. It can get more complicated and sophisticated than that. And if we understand that the conventional objects are mental constructs like that, it's a little bit easier to understand the voidness. From the other side, the Galupa presentation, that you actually see common sense objects, uh, uh, strengthens the whole compassion side. Because if uh, uh, that's its advantage, that if you actually see people and you know see these things, it's a little bit easier to have compassion for them than if you think, oh, that's just a mental construct. So each view has its uh, advantages and each has its disadvantages. They're both very helpful ways of, of viewing our experience. And Karmakaryu gets around this a little bit uh, uh, in a different way from Sakya and Yingma. They also say that whole con- uh, objects, dimensional objects, are mental constructs of conceptual constructs. But let's go a little bit more slowly. The conceptual construct is a static phenomenon. Static phenomenon of uh, a whole object, computer. I mean, a whole object. Here's this object, right? And this object is uh, um, doesn't actually do anything. So it's static. The you know electromagnetic waves and all these things, that's what's actually doing things. There's nothing solid there. Made of atoms and made you know everything is made of atoms and particles and electromagnetic waves. There's nothing solid even from you know, that's the basic Vibhashika view. There's nothing solid. So these are the things that are actually performing functions. So the mentally synthesized hand isn't. But because it's a static phenomenon, it doesn't have any, doesn't, it can't appear as anything. It's a metaphysical entity. It's abstract in a sense. So in our conceptual cognition, there's a mental representation of it that changes you know, from moment to moment. So, you know, when you have motion, changes from moment to moment. I think it was just a hand, a static hand that's not doing anything. But there is a mental representation, that's the mental hologram of the, that represents a whole conventional object. So that's happening in the conceptual cognition. And in addition, imputed on it, so latched on to it, 
is a category. That category could have latched onto it a name or a word. So the category is a category of, well, you can't, it's difficult to refer, refer to it without using the name. Dogs also have this, they don't attach names. You know, the category of my master or food or something like that. You know, so there's a category that all individual conventional items fit into. You know, my hand, your hand, both of my hands. It's a category of hand, and then there's a word attached to it called hand, which actually is just a combination of meaningless sounds that we then have a category of a meaning, that this is a word. It's just sounds. It's just a mental representation of sounds. But we've agreed by convention that... That's what we're going to designate this category and all the items that fit into it. You follow that? That's quite a lot (laughs) in one chunk. But that's what's going on in conceptual cognition. We're only talking now about the first moment of it. So there's the arising of a mental hologram of a uh, static Conventional objects are just mentally synthesized. There's a mental representation of it. So there's a hologram of it. So the hologram will be still colored shapes, but it represents also that this whole object has physical sensation and smell and you know taste and so on, and it lasts for more than one instant. And a category of what kind of thing it is, And so there's what's called a collection synthesis, you know, of all the data about it. And there's a kind synthesis of what kind of thing it is. And the category that fits into that kind of thing. And a word or name fixed to that category and through the category to the items that are in there. Hand, computer. And that's made up by convention. Some cave people or whoever invented a language decided that these arbitrary sounds will have a meaning. Okay? So this is how... And at that time, that first moment of conceptual cognition... There still is no, this is what's unique about uh, Karmakarkyu, different from Nyingma and Sakya, is that they say that in that first moment of conceptual cognition, there still is no grasping for truly established existence. In this way, there is less danger of, what should we say, um, thinking that there's no such thing as conventional objects. 
So, Karmakaryu says that this mental hologram now of a, of, a, of a conceptually synthesized whole object and the mental hologram of just colored shapes, both of them are Dharmakaya. They are mind itself. They are both what arises with mental activity. So, in that sense, we don't, you know, there's less danger of thinking that conventional objects are just a figment of your imagination. So, this is how Karmakaryu gets around that um, point of dispute that the uh, that could arise by taking it too literally that conventional objects are just figments of your conceptual mind. These are both waves of, uh, of dharmakaya, the glitter or display or effulgence, you know, whatever, however you want to translate it, of dharmakaya, waves on the ocean. So it's only in the second moment of conceptual cognition that then the appearance, this dualistic appearance from grasping for true existence arises. And with that you get all the you know all the other junk that comes in. You know me, that's my computer. Don't touch it. Don't use it. You're going to ruin it. Right? So me on one side is the mind that's looking at it and this object over there totally separate dualistic appearance that comes only with when there is an appearance of an actual conventionally conventional whole object not just colored shapes So that's why it said that in meditation, when a thought arises, so that is mentally synthesized, whole object, don't follow it out. That first moment of it, that's not the problem. The problem is the second moment and the third moment when you follow it out. It's just the arising of a thought, no big deal. Yes. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, when I just 
was mid-air, it was totally normal, and but when I kind of entered the flames, mm -hmm. it was like this, uh, like in the science fiction movies, there's this hyperdrive or wormhole or something they have to uh, enter, mm -hmm. and there's this kind of uh, thing, and it was this very much this sensation, and like my senses, which I'm used to them, they were kind of just wiped out. Mm -hmm. And time was not... Uh, it was the first time I kind of could... I had this sense of that time was kind of conceivable to me. It was something I... It wasn't like uh, totally chaotic or not. It was... Uh, I could mm, control my body uh, kind of perfectly. Uh, I had was very uh, not not like time was slow or still, but it was kind of in, in harmony. And this and flames has always been kind of chaotic and dangerous and uh, hot and all this. Uh, but when I was in the middle of them, uh, it was this uh, very peaceful, harmonious place to be. Mm -hmm. And uh, these flames were immensely beautiful. And the sounds were this calm uh, harmony, this like this slow melody. Mm -hmm. And uh, I felt so at peace and at ease. Mm -hmm. This very, very, it was nothing but calmness mm -hmm. inside. And uh, when I jumped out, it was just a snap out of it. But this, mm -hmm. this moment inside it with all of my experience. Uh, was uh, fire. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I could, when I landed on the embers, I could just see how the, my landing on the embers just flowed through, and this, this, all the motions of flames and my own body and all was. It made sense, mm -hmm. uh, and it was like uh, everything felt kind of uh, unavoidable. I could. I, was like this is the way it's supposed to be, mm -hmm. uh, and uh, I I felt like what you're saying this this first moment was was uh, there was no attachment to anything of it. It just mm -hmm. came and went, and, mm -hmm. uh, I, and I felt that there was I had no chance to to add anything to it or mm -hmm. to grasp or was mm -hmm. just this this concept of grasping was just uh, not available to me. Mm -hmm. you know? mm -hmm. And when I jumped out, I was back to normal. Mm -hmm. and, uh, I looked at these enormous bonfires and uh, I was thinking, should I do it again? And uh, no way I'm going to do it. <laughs> <laughs> Never. But at the same time, it was like one of my, or it was one of the most beautiful experiences I ever had. But like, I'm never ever going to do it again. Mm -hmm. uh, so, do you have a question about it? <laughs> yeah, but this, yeah, but this, this I, I felt like this this moment inside the fire, rather really like this, uh, is, is there a way to kind of, uh, or I felt like the, what I experienced inside the fire was kind of. Uh, some kind of pure experience, mm -hmm. but I don't want to go into a fire to experience. Right. That. Well, so is what is a, a more kind of safer way? Uh huh. <laughs> right. 
Well, what it sounds like to me is uh, almost like a uh, memory of a previous life in which perhaps you were a moth and flew into the flame. So there is this uh, instinct or tendency to be fascinated by fire and light and to go into it. And that's what it sounds like to me, that uh, this is a tendency that has been, uh, and a memory that has been reawoken. And when the moth goes into the flame, of course, it experiences death. And death is getting down to this clear light level of mind in which there is no grasping for truly established dualistic uh, existence. So it sounds to me like, you know, not quite getting down to the clear light mind, but uh, something uh, reminiscent of that. To me, that would make sense of uh, what you explained. Whether it's correct or not, I don't know. It could just be nonsense. But uh, that's what it sounds like. So it, uh, you know, it's understandable. There was kind of, um, there were no kind of distinctions between colors. Everything felt like uh, made out of light. Right, that's so a clear light experience. And the flames and everything was kind of the same texture or... Yeah, that's explained as the clear light experience. So it makes sense. Okay. This uh, grasping, you have a question? Yeah, I just want to. Can you pass the microphone? Marcus was asking whether there's any way to do this again. And if you say it's clear light, then the way to do it again is to die again. Well, no, the way to do it again is not necessarily only to die. Uh, in, uh, very advanced, well, in very advanced uh, meditations in uh, uh, Mahamudra, Tantra Mahamudra, or uh, any of the uh, various practices of uh, the highest class of Tantra, Nutra Yoga, on the complete stage, there are practices in meditation to be able to activate the uh, clear light mind and use it for understanding emptiness or voidness. You know, the deepest nature of the mind, you know, pure awareness, this uh, uh, um, foundational deep awareness. So there are meditational methods for doing that. You don't have to simulate death. I mean, you simulate death in your imagination by simulating the process with which uh, the um, mental activity withdraws from having a gross physical basis to subtler and subtler basis. That's simulated in meditation. Difficult though, very, very difficult. And requires, you know, a lot of prerequisites, not the least of which is perfect concentration. Good. So the only thing that I wanted to add was that this grasping for truly established existence, which uh, makes the appearance of uh, this, this dualistic appearance 
and then takes it, considers it to correspond to reality. So there's two phases of it, or two aspects of it. This is not included in the uh, five aggregates. It is there every moment. Well, not every moment. I mean, it is... As a tendency, it's there. As a habit, what's called a constant habit, it's there all the time, but only becomes manifest with uh, uh, the second moment of conceptual cognition. Mind you, we're having conceptual cognition all the time. You know, these tiny moments of non-conceptual sensory and mental are too fast for us to actually notice them. But uh, nevertheless, it is... um, not considered it's not a primary consciousness and it's not a mental factor which is what we'll get to uh, in our next session uh, because uh, it uh, interpolates primary consciousness and the mental factors don't add anything interpolate means to add something that's not there this grasping for true existence does add something that's not there which is the appearance, a dualistic appearance. In other words, there is the appearance of a whole common sense object, whole conventional object, and then, and that's a wave of Dharmakaya, no big problem, although eventually, you know, because there's always trouble with it. Because the next instant, grasping for true existence projects onto it this uh, false appearance that eventually, as uh, a Buddha, you want to get the mind to stop making this deceptive appearance. And so, in the end, you just have this uh, uh, functioning foundational deep awareness rather than dividing foundational dividing awareness but nevertheless this grasping for truly established dualistic existences there but not actually included in the five aggregates because it adds something but it also changes from moment to moment to moment okay so that is Perhaps enough for this session, and then we'll have uh, an hour of questions and hopefully some meaningful answers after lunch. So please think about all of this. This is, uh, if you haven't heard it before, it can be a little bit shocking, but uh, if you think about it, it actually does make sense in terms of our. Uh, everyday experience. I love to use the the object of a, the example of a, a bill, like I was saying, you know, a hundred krona bill. What is this? You know, I'm seeing, you know, colored shapes, and then mentally synthesized into a whole object, a bank, you know, a banknote. But actually, it's just a, color, a piece of paper with colored shapes on it. And we call it money. You know, we fit it into the category of money. 
But then, the next moment, you know, me, I have to have this, there's all the associations that are thrown on top of this. This actually, you know, has a value. You know, somebody from, you know, another planet that comes and sees this would think this is crazy. This is just a piece of paper. What is that? So that's what it means by a conventional object. You know, this convention, we all have been fooled into thinking that these pieces of paper actually are worth something and that if you give it to somebody they will give you something back in return. That's crazy. If you actually think about it, that's completely crazy. But we've agreed upon that and we have all bought into that myth. You know, that's like Santa Claus or Easter Bunny. And that's how it works. So that is this grasping for truly established existence and this insight that this first moment of conceptual cognition doesn't have this grasping for true existence allows us comfortably to then, although I know this is just a piece of paper, to actually use it conventionally to buy things without thinking this is totally ridiculous so I'm not even going to use it. It's just a piece of paper. I might as well, you know, use it for toilet paper. Blow my nose in it. So making this distinction between the first moment of conceptual cognition and the second moment, I think, makes it much, much easier for uh, uh, dealing with conventional cause and effect. That you can actually use conventional objects like pieces of paper to buy things. Okay? If it's a question, please leave it for the question session this afternoon. Okay, so we end with the dedication. Whatever understanding, whatever positive forces come from this may go deeper and deeper and act as a cause for everyone to reach the enlightened state of a Buddha for the benefit of all.